Good morning. All right, this morning I'm going to be reading out of 1 Samuel 16, and I'm Shelby, for those that I haven't met. Um, please don't stand. It's a little bit longer this morning, so I'm going to be nice and let y'all sit. All right, 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 through 23. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servant said to him, you see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord God, let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the liar. When the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the liar and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the liar. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a wineskin, and one young goat and sent them by his son David to Saul. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much, and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor with me. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play, and Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. I'll say the word of the Lord, and you say thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this place and these people. I pray that this morning through the preaching of your word, that we would hear more of your character and truth and that real abiding eternal hope would sink deep into each one of our hearts and minds this morning. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Shelby. Morning, y'all. Um, happy Tomato Fest weekend for all those that celebrate. Um, there you go. Yesterday was the, it, it was the weirdest weather for Tomato Fest that, that I've ever experienced. It was still a fascinating, awesome, amazing day. I love this community in which the Lord has planted us. I love getting to celebrate with our friends and our neighbors. And I hope you took some time to do the same yesterday. As uh, Charlie has already talked to us about a little bit this morning, we are now in week two of what is going to be a two-month sermon series on David, a complete character study of this, this man that, that is so famous that we know so much about. We know so much about him because actually more is written about David than any other character in the Old Testament. We actually know an incredible amount of the, the events of his life from birth all the way up until the day he died. Beyond that, we actually know a ton about um, the, the intimate thoughts and ideas, his spirit, his confusion, his joy, and his pain, because he was a prolific poet and songwriter. Each week, we will be singing and praying the words of David as we have already done this morning. We see throughout the book of Psalms, through these poems and these prayers and these songs that he wrote, he was a very complex person. Shepherd boy, giant killer. 
the greatest king in the history of Israel. Also, he was personally involved with just horrific acts, murder, rape, destruction, brutality, and yet known as a man after God's own heart. It is my hope that over these next eight weeks, we will find ourselves in his story and we will allow his story to do what it was designed to do, to do which is to point us toward Jesus. Last weekend, in week one, we were in that first half of the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, the, the chapter, the passage where David is introduced to us. It's the first time he appears in the scripture. Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, the last judge, it's the time he was introduced to David. This week, as we go in the second half of that chapter, the passage that Shelby read for us just a moment ago, we see when David is introduced to Saul. Now, we're going to approach this passage as kind of a sermon in two parts. We're going to spend the first half looking at Saul, the second half looking at David. We will probably find ourselves in both. If you remember a little bit of the background from last week, the nation of Israel had just gone through just a really, really dark, time in their history. God was their king. They had no earthly king. Because they had no earthly king, they felt like they had the freedom to do whatever they thought was right. And in the book of Judges, as we see this really dark period in their history, we're reminded time and time and time again, each person did whatever they thought was right at the time. And let me tell you, that did not go well for them. There was this cycle of rebellion and destruction and God would raise up these various men and women as judges, the people to eventually turn back to God and then the whole cycle would start all the way over again. Samuel was the last in those series of judges. As he got older, representatives from the tribes of Israel came to him and they said, Samuel, all right, you're, you're a good guy. We like you. You're really old. Your sons are jerks. Please don't appoint them as judges over us. As a matter of fact, it's time we want a king, a real king, an earthly king, a king like all the other nations have. We want somebody that's going to lead us. We want somebody that's going to protect us. We want somebody that's going to win battles for us. Give us a king. Samuel says this is a terrible idea, y'all. He goes and he talks to God. God, you won't believe what they're asking for. And God says, hey, you know what? If they want it, go ahead and give it to them. Remember, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. Samuel chapter 9, Samuel's introduced to Saul. Saul is very kingly. He is described as a head taller than everybody else. He has a commanding presence, a natural leadership. People follow him. When Saul would walk into a room, you would look at him and say, now that dude is a king. And so Samuel anoints him with oil as the first king in Israel. It did not go well. Saul was not only a bad king, Saul was a bad person. And 1 Samuel spends several chapters 
kind of unpacking what that looked like. This cycle of Saul constantly turning his back on the Lord. In essence, his main character flaw was self-exaltation. Saul considered himself to know better than everybody else. He was always the smartest person in the room. His relationship with God was no exception. Time and time again, Saul said, I know better than you, God. I'm going to do it on my own, God. My plans are smarter than yours, God. All of that kind of culminated in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God had sent Saul out to uh, battle against the Amalekites. It's like an ancient enemy of the nation of Israel. But this time it was going to be the end, and God said, we're just going to wipe them out. We're going to be done with them. As a matter of fact, the destruction needs to be so complete. Go ahead and even kill all of their livestock. Kill all of their stuff. Burn it to the ground so they'll never come back. Saul goes out. He leads the army. They win. Instead of destroying all of their stuff and livestock, Saul takes it for himself. He lets his generals take the spoils of war. Samuel comes to him and is like, Saul, dude, again, why have you done exactly what God told you not to? And Saul's like, oh, I, yeah, I get it. I get it. And I know he said that, and it makes a lot of sense, but think about all the good stuff we could do with all this livestock. It's some really good cows and goats and sheep. I can make some great sacrifices. My plan actually makes a lot more sense than God's plan. That was the end. Samuel says, you know what? Saul, no longer does God recognize you as king. You've been rejected as king of Israel. As a matter of fact, God has already chosen somebody else. Samuel didn't yet know who that somebody else was, but in that moment, Saul begins to realize the gig is up. This is the beginning of the end. He starts to spiral, and that's where we find him here in the second half of Samuel chapter 16. There are some problematic verses in this passage. All week long, I desperately sought ways to ignore them. It would have been far easier. I, I did not get any sort of peace in my spirit. Look at the very first words of the first verse that shall be read to us. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. I don't like that. That, that brings up a little bit of fear in a lot of us. The story of Saul is one where he continued to reject God. He continued to turn his back on God. He continued to willingly, intentionally, consistently disobey God. And eventually, the Spirit leaves him. When is that coming in my life? 
If you are anything like me, that is the first question I ask when I read 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. Is this my fate? No, it is not, and let me tell you why. We are in the Old Testament. We are under the Old Covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Under the Old Covenant, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, had not yet been poured out for all. Now, the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, Joel, they all look forward to the New Covenant. They prophesy about the New Covenant. They prophesy about that time, Joel writes in chapter 2. That time that the Spirit of the Lord will be poured out for all. Your sons and your daughters. Jesus, throughout his ministry, book of John, John 14, Acts 1.8, his final words to his closest friends and followers right before his ascension into heaven, promising the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come and will dwell within you. We see that promise fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, we are living under that new covenant now where the Holy Spirit dwells within those of us that know and recognize Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It was not that way under the old covenant. It was not that way in 1 Samuel chapter 16. See, the Holy Spirit worked in a very different way back then. The Holy Spirit was deployed to, to certain people at certain times for certain tasks and duties. It was not unusual for the Holy Spirit to come and to go. Don't be terrified by these first words in this verse. Having said that, the really scary thing is that might not be the most problematic idea even in this first verse. Look back with me. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. Oof. There is so much in that verse, so many words in that verse that I do not like at all. The Holy Spirit left Saul and an evil spirit was sent by the Lord to torment Saul. That is a terrifying idea. And what does that even mean about this good God that we know and love, that knows us and loves us? There are countless interpretations of the picture that is being painted by the author of 1 Samuel in this verse. My confession to you is I do not know which one is right. I don't know. But I can give you tools as you approach this idea and begin to process it. And the first tool I want to give you is the translation of that word that you see in your Bible this morning as evil. The original Hebrew word that's used in that, in that verse can be translated in a myriad of different ways, very commonly translated as misery. 
In this passage, perhaps more appropriately translated as misery. I was talking to my friend Paul Wilkinson this week, who is the smartest man I know, trying to unpack some of this. And and what Paul says is, in this moment, in this verse, what we see is Paul's, or Saul's consistent, intentional disobedience causing a substitution. The substitution of the Spirit of God for a Spirit from God, and that Spirit from God is a Spirit of misery, despair torment. The first spirit, the spirit of God, gave Saul power and authority and guidance and direction. The second bringing weakness and pain and torment, everything begins to spiral in Saul's life and his mind and his spirit from this moment. Now, here is where I need to point out. There are times that this type of misery can be a great mercy. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. It is absolutely the truth. You arrived this morning as an image bearer, the creator of the universe. Uniquely, intentionally knit together by that creator and designed to be in intimate relationship with your creator, to be in communion with your creator. It is in that intimacy that we experience peace, and joy, and contentment. It is our prideful, consistent, intentional disobedience that wrecks that intimacy, takes us out of that peace. We experience that misery, that torment, that reminds us there's something missing, there's something wrong, there's something not right, and can chase us back into our relationship with our Creator. That can be a great mercy. As I say that, also hear me say this, not All misery and pain is ordained by God to drive us back to him. If you hear a preacher say that, it is emotionally and spiritually manipulative. It is not the truth. There are times that we experience loss and pain and despair because we live in a world full of loss and pain and despair. God is in that. We have sang about God as our refuge. God is your refuge in that as well. There are also times we experience that loss and pain and despair. We experience that misery and that torment as a consequence of our consistent decision-making. 
I do not know where you are today. I cannot speak that into your life. I encourage you to begin to evaluate that. Also hear me say, intimacy with your creator does not mean you're going to be happy all the time. Communion with your creator does not mean every moment will be cotton candy and rainbows and unicorns. Everything's going to work out okay. There is no promise in God's word that says that. There are actually a lot of promises that say just the opposite. What it does mean is there is a contentment there that you cannot experience otherwise. That contentment that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4. That contentment in surplus and that contentment when you're shipwrecked on an island. That contentment that says wherever I am, whatever I have, I am whole and complete because I know who Jesus is and I know who I am in Jesus. And I don't need anything else in the world to define me. So when anything else is taken away from me, it does not change who I am. That's the contentment that we find. Saul never found it again. Saul continued to spiral, and he was spiraling quickly, and everyone around him knew it. And it was scary. Because when a, when a king starts to spiral, things tend to go pretty poorly for everybody else. So those that were closest to him were saying, please, let us help. Let us find someone. Let us find someone that can come in and, and can play music for you to soothe your soul, to soothe your spirit. And one of his servants says, I got a guy. I know a guy. Everybody loves the guy that has a guy, right? I got a guy, and not only is he, is he beautiful in the way he plays the lyre, but he's valiant, he's eloquent. He's a great warrior, he's strong. He's good looking, he's got a strong jaw, you get lost in his eyes. Just gushing these compliments about the youngest son of Jesse, the last of which was, and the Lord is with him. I do not know if this servant recognized that he was prophesying in that moment, but make no mistake, he was prophesying in that moment. Saul says, that sounds like the guy I need. Go get him and bring him here. When last we saw David, Samuel had made his way to Bethlehem in secret because he had already told Saul, God has chosen another king. Once that cat was out of the bag, as soon as we start the process of, of anointing that new king, if Saul finds out, Samuel and the new king are dead. So he goes in secret. He finds Jesse and his family. Jesse brings his oldest seven sons. None of them are the right ones. Samuel's like, do you have anybody else? Where there, There's the runt of the litter. He's out in the field right now, but you don't want to see him. Samuel says, I'm going to sit right here until I do. 
David comes back from watching the sheep, the Lord immediately whispers into Samuel's ear, that's the one. David at that moment is anointed king. Samuel leaves. What happens next? Well, as far as David is concerned, nothing. He just goes back to the field. He goes back to watching the sheep, and it looks like everything is happening so fast, but between 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, and 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, over two years have passed. Samuel, or excuse me, David has been sitting in that field watching those smelly, ridiculous sheep for two years, knowing He's been anointed king of Israel. He is the king of Israel. Can you imagine how pointless and insignificant that time must have felt? Night after night, just watching sheep, which are probably the dumbest animals on the planet, making sure the wolves don't get them, making sure they don't drown in the pond because they can't swim, all the while watching his brothers get older, his brothers join Saul's army, his brothers becoming war heroes. And he's thinking, what am I doing here? I've been anointed king. I'm still in the exact same place, living in that already, not yet living in the mundane, pointless boredom of everyday life, knowing there is something else, knowing there's a new season, wondering why it hasn't started yet, and then one day the call comes. Saul wants you. Saul wants you to come to his court. Saul is going mad. Saul needs you. That is not the call David thought would come. He's probably 15 years old at this time. No doubt terrified. Because if Saul knew he was the one, it would be over. The moment Saul finds out he's the next king, He is absolutely as good as dead. And what we find in the next few chapters of 1 Samuel is Saul spends most of the rest of his life chasing David and trying to kill him. I mean, this morning we sang. You prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Half the time when David was writing verses like that in the Psalms, he was talking about Saul. So 15-year-old David suddenly is being called into the lion's den, into the valley of the shadow of death. And not only does he go, he goes with gifts. He goes with a donkey laden with things for the king. David goes knowing that in that moment, as scary as it is, the Lord is his refuge. And as soon as he enters into Saul's presence, he becomes the favorite. He becomes beloved. Even becoming Saul's armor bearer for a time. Being the armor bearer is a, not only a position of great importance, 
prominence, but incredible trust. There was an intimate relationship between David and Saul, all stemming from David's role playing music. Where did David learn to play music? Night after night, watching those stupid sheep. Picking at this little ten-stringed harp, soothing the flock, soothing his own soul, writing poetry, crying out to the Lord. Living in the already, not yet Wondering why am I still here the whole time the Lord preparing him for that next season. The whole time the Lord saying, I've got a plan, don't worry about it, you follow me. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. It's not I've got a plan that's great, it's I've got a plan, your job is to focus on me. That's what David did while the Lord was preparing him for that next season. David became beloved in Saul's court for his ability to play music, not for the entertainment value. He wasn't in there cranking out banger after banger. It was because the Lord gave him an ability to play music that soothed the soul. You see, in that moment, David was sent into that place, a 15-year-old boy, as an agent of God's peace. It was not a permanent peace. Saul continued to reject it. But in those brief glimpses, Saul could see, could feel, could experience the peace of the Lord. This morning... As we conclude this time, I want to encourage you to find yourself in this story. Find yourself in 1 Samuel chapter 16. As you think about Saul, as you think about this torment and this misery, Are you in that season? Are you in that place that you are just desperately seeking something that you are convinced that's the thing that is finally gonna give me contentment? That's the thing that's gonna finally make it okay? That's the thing that's gonna finally make me whole? Are you looking at your life saying, these are the things I need to change? This relationship, this job, this church, this city, this house. Those are the things, once I kind of figure all this out, then God and I will be copacetic because everything's gonna be fine. If you are in that season of discontent, I would encourage you to ask yourself why. I can't speak that into your life. I have no idea. But take that to the Lord. Take that to your creator, curl up in his lap, bring that to him. He wants to hear it. As you hear about David, does it resonate in your spirit? Are you asking yourself, why am I even here? 
Nothing has been happening. It's been years and every day is exactly the same. And I can feel in my bones there's another spirit. I mean, there's another season. There's another time. There's something in the future. When is that ever going to happen? Remind yourself. The Lord is preparing you. Or are you being sent into a place that you might feel uncomfortable? Are you sent into a place that, that you might feel unsafe? Are you sent into a place that, that might feel dangerous, that you're not familiar with? Are you being sent as an agent of peace, the peace of the Lord? And it's to that God that we pray this morning. Lord, I am so grateful that I get to hold in my hands every single day the living, breathing word of the living, breathing God. I'm so grateful that I don't understand it all. May that always be evidence that there's a God and I'm not it. This morning, speak into our spirits. May we find ourselves in the story of Saul. May we find ourselves in the story of David. May they all point us to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.